Welcome to Hollywood Wolfpack with Kaya Alexander, featuring in-depth interviews and insights with professionals in the entertainment business. Get everything you need to navigate your above-the-line career right here. This podcast is often recorded live in front of Kaya students in the Entertainment Business School. You can find out more at entertainmentbusinessschool.com. Hollywood Wolfpack is the new face of entertainment business wisdom. Enjoy the show. All right. Hi, and welcome, everybody. I am Kaya Alexander, your host, and I'm here today with Mike Diaz. Let me tell you about him, and then we're going to dive right in. Mike, so excited you're here with us. He is a first-generation Cuban-American writer from Florida. He earned an MFA in film from the University of Central Florida and has written and directed a plethora of projects. He got to start teaching and producing for National Geographic, which took him to six continents before relocating to LA to focus on writing scripted television. A graduate of the Paramount Writers Mentoring Program, Mike got to start writing broadcast TV on Magnum PI. He's currently a co-producer on NCIS Hawaii and a strike captain in the WGA strike. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You have fascinating background, sir. And I want to let's go back to your origin stories for a moment as first generation Cuban American writer. How did your folks get here from Cuba? So they uh, it was that's an interesting story. They uh, were based in Havana. Uh, My entire paternal side was there. Um, And my grandmother and my grandfather divorced shortly before Castro came to power. And then Castro started sort of once he was in power, obviously building a government, and my grandfather found his way into that world and realized that a lot of my grandma's friends were working against Castro, like using her car to shuttle weapons across the island. So it was kind of a Mr. and Mrs. Smith situation. Oh it, it got a little goodness. tense. Yeah, and, and my grandfather realized uh, that what my grandma was up to one day, because my toddler father, I think it was about three, pointed to a newspaper one day and said, those are all my friends. And then he looked and they were all mug shots of counter-revolutionaries. <laughs> and so at that point, my grandma realized it's time to go. Uh, and so luckily we had family living in, in Flushing, Queens. They had been here since the 40s. And my grandma would would go to New York every Christmas, basically, to spend time with the family. So they basically claimed them and my grandmother, her parents, and my dad, who was only four, uh, emigrated to Flushing, Queens. So it was a, you know, they all lived in one apartment. It was sort of a classic uh, immigrant story. Wow, just like slipped out right before Castro came to power, huh? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just, well, actually, just shortly after he came to power. So 1961, he'd been in about a little over a year. Um, so yeah, they got out in the nick of time. And and um, yeah, my, my dad grew up in New York and then uh, made his way down to Virginia Beach and, and became a uh, scientist. He started working for for uh, NASA, which was his big dream. Um, and I think that's sort of what informed my nerdiness as a kid. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, but I found my way into the arts, obviously. It sounds like you grew up, though, with a love and passion for the world and for exploring, given how much you did with National Geographic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, I've been very fortunate in my career to be able to travel quite a bit uh, on other people's dimes. <laughs> um, and it started in college. <laughs> no, not suck. at all. <laughs> um, I started traveling sort of extensively. You know, I did the classic study abroad thing in, in college. I, I Uh, spent a summer in Italy. Um, And then I uh, ended up spending a semester in China. 
uh, doing documentaries about folk artists and sort of realized that documentary is this really incredible tool for communication, communicating all sorts of ethno ethnography, history, all kinds of stuff, politics. Um, and so after grad school, I got my MFA uh, from the University of Central Florida. Most of my friends were moving to Los Angeles. And then there was a small contingent, about a third of us that moved to New York. And I just wanted to live, maybe this is why I love the, the sort of June gloominess. I wanted sort of the moody Northeastern city, get rid of my car, all that stuff. And so I uh, found myself in New York and, and you know, originally the dream was I'm gonna sort of work on my own micro budget features and then just have day jobs. And, uh, and then I, I gradually realized that I wanted to monetize my interests, you know, get sort of time together. But I ended up getting to do cool things and fell in with National Geographic. And um, I got to travel all around with them, which was really incredible. So curious about the monetizing your interests, because for some artists, it's the, the pressure can just kill the art. Um, how did you did you feel like you started to thrive in that environment? How, how did you relate to how, who you were becoming? Uh, in terms of the monetization and sort of starting to do it for a living? Yeah, doing it for a living. And now you're, you know, monetizing your art, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I've actually discovered that, you know, my New York days, full disclosure, I, I having a day job and then having no firm deadlines for projects was kind of limiting for me in a way, you know, like the sky's the limit, which is great. Um, but oftentimes you just come home from work and you're tired and, and, uh, and, or you just have to, you have to be very self-motivated, which I, I, you know, it can come in spurts. It's sort of cyclical for me. Everybody's different, but I found that constraints, particularly time constraints, are really conducive to productivity for me. And so I thrive better when there are deadlines. And so I, I gradually learned I have to give myself deadlines in order to get these projects done before I, I've gotten hired to write. And now afterward, it's, it's you know, very motivating to have a deadline and, and actually ends up breeding more creativity than if you have all the time in the world. Oh, that is so interesting. Okay, so you end up getting this job for National Geographic. What are you doing? So I started out sort of as a grunt. I was uh, I started out as a, a PA on a on a show called Brain Games that they did for many years, which is just sort of a yeah science based kind of a you know sort of game show ish. It's it's lightly scripted, um, and that was really cool. That got my foot in the door, and then from there I became an associate producer um, on a show called Live Free or Die, which is about people living off the land, sort of off the grid. But only a couple miles from a grocery store, and 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 it was all about kind of getting into the the psychology of why you would want to give up all of life's amenities to go live in the woods. And there's a a huge movement of this in the country right now. It's called the rewilding movement. So a lot yeah, of people are just leave. and slow. I mean, I did it for yeah. almost ten years in the mountains in Santa Cruz, so I'm real familiar with it. Yeah. So that that community, that show was all about that. And I met some really cool people. I was, you know, we had people all over, producers all over the country. I was stationed in uh, Ashland, uh, or not Ashland, I'm sorry, Asheville, North Carolina. So okay. Mars City, just outside of uh, uh, Asheville. And, and, you know, we had two subjects that were, you know, one couple was sort of living up, they bought this, you know, completely un- farmable tract of land that was so steep there was no topsoil and their dream was to make it completely self-sufficient so they didn't need to rely on any outside sources for food or anything else they were very interesting and then another guy that was just a classic you know sort of you know living off the land on his own hunter-gatherer lifestyle and and you know 
2000, this was 2014, I guess, at the time. So really cool. I learned a lot about sort of, you know, it felt like guerrilla filmmaking. How uh, long were you following films. them? Like how long were uh, you watching them? Six months. Um, and so I was sort of, you know, I got to shoot and interview them a lot. Uh, I also had to handle things like getting lunches. <laughs> I had to uh, do a little bit of post, um, handling logistics, handling money, all this stuff. So it was a real crash course in producing for a very specific type of project, which, you know, you're dealing with tiny crews, four or five people at most six. Um, so it was a really great experience. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, so you go from there. But wait, where did you fall in love with? writing scripted with like saying uh, getting your sights set on television i mean you know i i never i fell into working at national geographic and loved it but my heart was always in scripted mm -hmm. i just didn't know after film school you know film school was great for me and that i learned how to make a movie i got to make a feature in graduate school um which probably shaved about seven years off my life uh but i you know <laughs> ch cherished the experience it was great i never you know, set out to work in documentary or docu-series specifically. It was, it, you know, I just sort of moved to New York, you know, and, and I think it comes down to that, like, dichotomy between needing to work and then having your passion. And I just figured I'm going to take whatever job I can and I'm going to write on the side. And so I was writing the entire time. I was working on a novel, actually, while I was working on this show, uh, working on a couple scripts. But I didn't realize, you know, having come from the film, the feature side of things, that there was a, a career path in the form of scripted television, where there's, you know, in terms of above the line work, I think that being a TV writer is the closest there is to a specific path. And I had no idea. Um, and so while living in New York, I think my gateway drug to what TV could do was Breaking Bad. I was very late to the game, but I immediately fell in love with it and inhaled it. And but I still thought that TV was a director's medium. I didn't realize that it was all about the showrunner and the writers. Um, not all about them, to be clear, but you know that it started there, and that they that showrunners hired directors had no idea, didn't know the any of that. The genesis of where the seed for the show comes from, I, yeah. It's a, unless you're in the inside of it, many people don't have any idea. I mean, when I even started doing this show and my work with the Entertainment Business School, my mom was like, "What's a showrunner?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm actually this is a funny story. It's kind of embarrassing to admit, but when I got that national, my first job at National Geographic. Uh, my the production manager was like, okay, so the showrunners are going to be here, and I was like, I had to Google what a showrunner was because I had no idea that we never talked about it uh, in grad school. So, anyway, I uh, I think that That's crazy. But... Yeah, yeah. the The entire time that I was out there, I, I in New York, I was just falling in love with what I was seeing in TV, and gradually realized that it's a writer's medium and that there was a career path for this, and that I was also in the wrong city to start. That oh, that. <laughs> yeah, the cold realization that I was 3,000 miles away from where most writers get their start. Not that there aren't rooms in New York, but most people start in LA and then end up in New York. Yes. Uh, rather than the other way around. So in 2017, I, I moved out here. And, and, and the, the interesting thing in, in entertainment is that you've got, I was very familiar with the unscripted world, even though I was always working on my craft, you know, as a, as a writer and, and the scripted side of things but never paid to do that. It's like two industries almost. Like people that work in unscripted usually don't know scripted people and vice versa. Yeah. So just, I had no idea how to get in. I, I just I just knew that I wanted to do it and that 
now was the time. And so I moved out here completely green, didn't know anybody. All my friends from, from film school had wound up in unscripted with, the, with a couple of people that were working below the line in camera department, but they were traveling all over the country working on scripted shows. So truly had no idea how to do it. Um, and then I just, a friend of a friend got me a job at Fox 21, uh, which is now I think Touchstone. Anyway, at the time it was Fox's studio for, for cable stuff, for, for prestige TV. Like they did the Homeland, Homeland and the Americans and et cetera, et cetera. And so it was a great job. I was the office PA, it was, was kind of cushy. I lucked out. And what made it really valuable was I had access to, and I helped set up all the writer's rooms for all of their shows. So I met all the support staffers on all those shows. And then I got a writer's PA job about a year into it on one of their shows. And I took the leap of faith because it was only going to be three months long, but it was an incredible experience. And ironically on a Nat Geo scripted show. Um, that was a full, so full all circle came, moment for you. Yeah, full circle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm sort of all over the place, but uh, that was, I, you know, I, I kind of, by listening to all sorts of podcasts about this world, realize, okay, there's three arenas I need to pay attention to here. I should try to work in the industry and whatever job I can get as close as I can get to a writer's room, which is yeah. why I was after office PA jobs, because that's where you usually meet, you know, you have the highest chances of meeting, I should say the showrunner and or writers um, in the world before Zoom, <laughs> uh, that I need to network and not in a, in a dirty way where I'm just like meeting people to see what they can do for my career and vice versa, but like actually building real relationships and friendships with people that would sustain me through my career. Um, and then third, write constantly as much as I can. And so I took a job, I, I took a couple classes at UCLA Extension. Just a great my ass off. Yeah, really, really great. Met a lot of cool people. Um, and then through that actually got my agents um, because uh, my one of my instructors brought his friend one day to sort of critique pitches in, in, in class. And I asked her, if she would be up for giving me notes on an it was a spec class and I asked her if she'd be up for reading a, an original pilot of mine and she graciously did and then she liked it and introduced me to her agent and and I thought this is it I'm gonna get get a job this is you know and then nothing happened which <laughs> a lot of people think like getting the the agent or the manager is the next step and sometimes it works out but nine times out of ten you get your jobs other ways um, and so ultimately what got me in was I, I was this entire time while I was writing living in LA, I was applying to all the fellowships. Yes. And so I ended up getting into the Paramount Mentors Program in 2019 for the 2019-2020 class. And then they helped me get staffed on Magnum PI. And I've been very, very fortunate to be working in, in broadcast TV consistently since 2020. Oh, wow. And during the pandemic and everything, did you guys shut down your writer's room or did you keep going during the pandemic on Zoom? We were on Zoom. I actually joined them and I got hired in April 2020. And then we were waiting a bit because that was in the, the days oh, when it was like, this is going to be two or four, two to four weeks long. That's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those and days. Then, yeah. And then it just didn't go away. And so they were like, let's do a Zoom room. Um, so I never actually, there's still writers on Magnum that I've still not met in person. So oh this gosh. was the world I we're in. Yeah. I, I love the show. I grew up watching the original with Tom Selleck with my mom, of course, so many of us. And like, I guess we're probably close to the same age. I was born in 75. And like that for us was such a touch point in our family of connection between my mom and I, who would just have a laugh, pick our feet up and uh, enjoy the adventures. How did you feel about um, coming into a legacy show like that on the adaptation as basically your first gig? 
it was really exciting. I, you know, it's funny. I, when I got the job, I had a long time before, a long time to be really anxious before the, the room actually started. I had about, <laughs> I think about a month to really like get in my head. And, and anyway, the Paramount program is great in terms of preparing you for, you know, sort of business side of being a writer. Cause most people that get into the program have gotten to just enough of a skill level to be able to, to do the job, but that's not the entire job. It's about the room it's about sort of how you present yourself and pitching and all that stuff so i i inhaled the original i'd actually never seen it um and so and i fell in love with it and and then about a week or so before uh the room started i met another writer and i was like i love the original it's so cool and and i you know there were two seasons of the the reboot to watch which i caught up on which was yes. great and it's all right but a very different show very and so um they they kind of yeah the, uh, fortunately or unfortunately there's not a lot of uh comparison between the two and the showrunners wanted to create their own thing you know with a very different magnum Thomas magnum and, and so yeah so it, it was it was interesting to just see sort of how tv has evolved um you know what a cbs show looked like in the 80s versus today and uh and 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 how quickly sort of taste and sensibility changes. So much. I have so much that I could say about that, but I want to go back to really your breaking in through the Paramount program, um, through the fellowship. What script uh, did you submit? And can you tell us about it a little bit? Sure. So I submitted two. You're supposed to submit an original, or at least at the time, uh, an original pilot and then a spec. And so I su submitted a spec of Stranger Things um and then i submitted uh a actually this this script has gotten me the most traction it's funny like you you, you know i i keep writing because i love doing it and most people want to have sort of robust portfolios with lots of work that's demonstrates different abilities you have so that you are marketable to lots of different shows but one script has sort of gotten me a lot of traction and it's it's an apocalyptic trauma about a basically there's there's a, a, an event called a coronal mass ejection, which my dad's space nerdiness informed a lot of this, which um, the, yeah. the thing that happens where the sun will produce so just basically, a, it'll go into overdrive very suddenly and it'll shoot out, you know, electromagnetic radiation and it'll appear on earth in the form of Aurora Borealis. And so the last time this happened, I think was 1849, it was called the Carrington event. Some astronomers in, in England observed it and you could see aurora borealis as far south as the equator and so the big difference between 1849 and today is there was no grid so yeah. if that happened no today technology it would, to blow out oh yeah, that it would blow out all of our tech and so it was just an idea you know sort of the conceit of the show and what would happen if all of a sudden infrastructure just came to a, a halt and so it's about this guy who's on a job interview in la and all of his family's in new york and he, this event happens and he has to traverse the United States in order to get back to his kid. And so kind of like, you know, draws a little bit from the road, only no nuclear apocalypse and it sort of plays with what society would look like at that level. So classic apocalyptic thing, very not in any way broadcast. And yet <laughs> I got into the program with that. So, you know, they're not looking for, people have asked me like, if I want to write and broadcast, should I have a broadcast sample? And not necessarily, you know, um, you, you, you should, you know, I would say spec broadcast on your own in order to sort of get a feeling for 
what it entails and what the rhythm of it is, but you can staff on any show with any sample. It just depends on the showrunner's taste and what they're looking for. And it includes, you know, the programs. Do you think it helped you to get into the fellowship that you already had an agent? No, actually. <laughs> Not at all. They, yeah, yeah. Um, they, most of the people in my class didn't have any sort of representation. Actually, a big part of the program is introducing you. They do these sort of speed dating events with, they have one night with agents and then one night with managers. So um, I think, you know, my agent's great and he was setting me out in generals and stuff, but there was, this was something that I kind of got on the side on my own. And, and then he really, what was great about having an agent, I will say this advantage, he didn't necessarily help me get in, but having him in my courts in the program was great because he was using that to generate interest and get me more meetings because it was sort of a, you know, a point of legitimacy or something for me. And that I think also it helps because these programs, depending on the program, have a reputation for staffing people. They're pretty effective. And, and so it was like, I kind of got two agents, Jeannie Mao, who at the time was the, the head of the program was just a staffing wizard. And you know, the, the programs can't force any shows to take any fellows, you know, they just have to, all they can do is make introductions and share samples, but she's amazing. And so she was able to get 100% of us, all of us staffed uh, within a couple of months. Yeah. Um, so, but having Paul, my agent in, in my court was really great. He introduced me to my managers. I didn't quite connect with anybody that I, that I met through the program. And then he used it as an opportunity to sort of send me out because I just wanted as big a team as I could have. Um, because I feel like at the, early on in your career, you want as many people as you can have in your, in your corner. Oh, it's an interesting strategy and it makes a lot of yeah. sense and it sounds like it really helped you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, you know, getting on Magnum was incredible. And, and, you know, I thought I had an idea of how TV works and I wasn't necessarily, you know, imagining myself as a procedural writer or a crime guy or anything, but I learned so much from that show from those two years. And it made me such a better writer and, and storyteller. And, and I came to understand, I think, in a really specific way, structure and the way it should work in episodic television. And I remember I began realizing, oh, you know, something that's interesting that's happening with streaming and the advent of shows like I expect, you know, Stranger Things is they sort of behave like eight or 10 hour movies. There's not a lot of individual episodic structure there. And now you're starting to see the evolution of procedurals like Poker Face, which is like a classic sort of conceit. You know, it's basically Murder, She Wrote, mm -hmm. but it feels like a prestige show. It is. It's got, you know, major talent, but it still follows that procedural, uh, yeah, you know, procedural structure. And so working in that world has really broadened my scope as a writer. And I've noticed it starting to affect my writing that isn't procedural. And so, you know, so very grateful. What are, what's one of the things that you learned that is a takeaway that some of the writers listening um, could be utilizing in their own work? Well, again, I think like thinking about whatever episode that you're working on and whatever pilot you are, make sure that it's not just setting up, a, you know, a, an entire season or an entire show. Make sure that it has its own individual three-act structure and that the episode, you, could, you should do two things whenever you're writing a pilot. Show us what the show is going to be. Don't be coy. You know, like if, you, if there's this really exciting thing that you know is going to happen in episode eight, do whatever you can to get it in the pilot. Because at this stage, 
you're showing your muscles as a writer, you shouldn't think about it as this is the thing that I'm going to sell. Hopefully you do, but you should think about it as I'm showing whatever executive or agent that's reading this, uh, my chops. And so I think you, the best way to do that is to show a really satisfying sort of give a really satisfying, concise example of what the show is going to look and feel like, you know, on the whole, but also make sure that there's a beginning, middle and an end to this specific episode. There should be a closure at the end of the episode, a, a mini story, if you will, that makes the episode in its own way sort of self-contained, you know, rather than just the first hour of a movie that just gets lopped off as a, as a, as a you know, a cliffhanger or whatever. And then they need to tune in for episode two. Make it contained. You know, even if it's not procedural or particularly episodic, um, you should have a theme for every episode of television that you write. That's so interesting. And aren't the streamers, though, looking for, well, I mean, now they're dropping shows weekly, but back in the binge watching era, what Netflix created, the beast, the behemoth that they created with binge watching, aren't they looking for a cliffhanger that makes the audience click over? Oh, I've got to watch the next one. Absolutely. But I think it's possible to create that and have the episode have some uh, completion to it, some individual story that the episode is is about. You can you can achieve both, I think, you know, Absolutely. I think that. Yeah, I think a lot of writers sort of and, and I was guilty of doing that watch. They binge a show. You, you watch it really quickly, you know, over the course of like a couple of days, it sort of blurs together as one piece in your mind. And you're like, man, I'm going to write something that reminds me of this project I've been working on. You feel really, you know, inspired. You start writing and then you sort of treat it like a piece of a large bingeable project rather than a work of art in and of itself, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's the cascade of connection. Yeah. You know, you're talking about what's basically a movie that's, you know, eight hours long um, yeah. and now we're starting to see structure change. How are you seeing television change and evolve and what inspires you about it? I mean, I think, you know, we're starting to see, you know, again, what I think is really fascinating. I never would have guessed even just a couple of years ago that this procedural thing would be a thing, you know, that procedural shows are such a component of broadcast TV. And, you know, if you if you you take a cop show or a mystery show, broadcast, it looks one way, and then in streaming or cable, it looks another. Like, you know, a cop show, The Wire is, is very different than NYPD Blue back in the day, you know. But we're starting to see the streamers in particular show interest in procedurals. And I think part of it might be trying to get older demographics over, you know. Um, I think the people that watch my current show, NCIS, tend to be a little bit older on the older side because that's the TV that they grew up with, that they know. Um, but they're trying to pull those people over. And I think that they're realizing that, you know, I, I've had several meetings with executives who say, yeah, we're really looking for stuff that's a little more episodic, which is shocking. I just didn't think that that was going to be a thing. And I think part of it is just in terms of retaining subscribers. Part of it is... Uh, trying to pull over other demographics, whatever it is, but I never would have guessed in a million years that we would have something called a procedural and that a show like Poker Face would exist because it's just classic TV in the trappings of expensive prestige TV of, you know, 2023. I've never heard the term before. Can you give us other examples of shows that might fit that procedural moniker? Um, I mean, Poker Face is the biggest one that's, that I've seen. I've heard people, not off the top of my head, I've heard people reference other shows that are similar, 
Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to do a little more research on that. But it's it's you know, poker, if you haven't seen it, Poker Face is really interesting because I think that's where a lot of we're going to see a, a, this genre sort of become more popular. Oh, fantastic! Okay, homework for the listeners, y'all. Yes. <laughs> So what are your responsibilities as, so you're mid-level TV writer as co-producer, tell us about yeah. some of your responsibilities in the day-to-day -day of your work. I mean, you know, I would say the day-to-day -day is just participating in the room wherever we are. We come together, we break an episode together, and then the showrunners assign that episode to a specific writer. Um, once you're assigned an episode, you, you know, do what's called a, a story overview. Every studio has a different term for it, but it's basically a one-page synopsis of what the episode's going to be that you then send to the executives. They decide if they like it or not. Usually they just have some notes. Sometimes they don't. Um, and then from there, you get the green light to go and start outlining. And then you go and you do a studio network draft and such, um, so on and so forth. You guys probably know that process. Um, my show is unique in that, you know, this is becoming more and more rare. And part of the reason that we're, you know, in the situation that we're in in Hollywood and, and a major talking point in the strike is I get to go to set and, and that's not all that common anymore. Um, so I'm eternally grateful to my showrunners for that. Um, my previous show, we didn't get to go to set. Um, and so- And it's set the episode, in, mostly in Oahu? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So there are, you know, very, very lovely place to go. There are worse places you could go to shoot. Um, <laughs> And so leading up to going to set, you know, once the episode has, once the production drafts, you know, there's several drafts that go through various stages of notes. Once the production draft is out there and the crew has it, um, then you start the meetings, the prep meetings. And so on my show, we do, you know, it's usually about two weeks of prep. Those initial meetings are done on Zoom, you know, from I'm here in LA, most of the crew is in Hawaii. Um, and, and it's just basically sort of walking the crew through what any what questions they might have about what's to be achieved and you know the, the interesting thing about broadcast is it's just such a constricted tight schedule you know so producing they're doing this all the time it's sort of industrialized uh pace and so they're coming in you've got all the department heads and all these meetings that are asking you a million questions about what this is and what's you know what color is that you know everything from like what you know the props department will send you an email with seven different you know, belts to choose from, which you're like, how is this? You know, I never in a million years would have thought that this would be something that a writer would have to weigh in on. You mentioned belt you know, in the script and they're like, which belt is it? Yeah, yeah which belt, you know, and, and they're, they're so good. You know, like our, our, our props guy Sterling is incredible. He'll send a million examples for everything and things that you wrote that you didn't really think much about. And then he's spending time you know, gathering materials to sort of execute your vision. And that's how it is with every department, hair and makeup, uh, special effects, um, even like, you know, vehicles, choosing what school bus you want versus another. I did an episode last year that involved an elementary school and they were, it was a big thing to find school buses on the island that weren't in use and, right. um, you know, all of that stuff. So you're doing a ton of meetings for a couple of weeks on Zoom and then about three or four days before production starts on the episode, they fly us out. And then you're doing more meetings. You're doing um, production meeting, the tone meeting. Um, the tone meeting is an important meeting where the writer and the showrunner and the director sit down and discuss sort of line by line what we're looking for. And, and, and you know, before I got to go to set, I remember on Magnum thinking, feels like a lot of this is kind of unnecessary. You know, like you hear that meetings generally in the workforce are kind of 
time wasters. Their time sucks. You know, they seem like really important and efficient, but they're actually the opposite. And so I was kind of like, is this stuff really necessary? I feel like they could just send an email if they have questions. Actually going to set and seeing how much is open to interpretation. You know, we're sort of siloed in the room. It all makes sense to us. Yes. And then it's going to these 200 people and then you're like explaining things that made sense in your head that seems like it's in the page to you, but they're all in the dark about it. They, they've all come up with a completely different interpretation. So I've come to believe that it's really, really important to have writers on set. And so the meetings are where you try to work all that stuff out. And then when you actually start shooting, you know, you're in this interesting position because you're not supposed to directly talk to talent. That's the director's job. It's sort of union. DGA rule. So you are kind of making suggestions to the director when you see things. And, and usually we're trying, you know, we're not taking up a ton of space. It's not a bull in a china shop situation. It's you're a guest of production. You're there for questions from the talent about the intention of certain lines and to throw suggestions to the director. And that's really all you can do. And, do you get um, your own chair? You do. You got your own chair. You your own chair. Where do you and, have to sit? <laughs> at Video Village, right You're next to the Video director. Village in your own chair. Yeah. Oh, yeah, which is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so after that, you know, on my show, we're involved in every stage of post production, and so we give notes to the editors, sound mixers. There's a, a litany of meetings after that, um, and yeah, and then usually by the time you're ending, you know, you're in the post process on one episode, you've started writing another one, and so. And then, and then you're also meeting on all the other episodes as a writer's room. So it's, you're, you're intimately involved in every step of the process on all the episodes. Um, and it's a really incredible learning experience. I've gotten so much more out of this than I ever did in grad school, not to disparage grad school, but it was, it was great to be, you know, there, no better way to learn than by doing it, I guess. Totally hands-on. Okay, yeah. so from start to finish, how long is it taking to produce an episode? Good question. How I would say the actual production is that how many days of actual production in the midst of everything that goes in and then comes out on the other side with post? Eight days. Eight days of shooting. Um, to give you an example, so last year, my first episode on the show, I was assigned in mid-June. Then we shot it in mid or late August. And then the show aired in November. So several months, you know, and then you're usually working on two or three of these at the same time and varying levels of, so you're busy, you know, but it's fun work. It's amazing. Fun work. How much of the year are you working before the show goes on hiatus with uh, the network show? Um, usually I would say on average nine to 10 months. And then usually it's just a couple months off for hiatus. This year was unique because we rolled right from season two into season three back in February because wow. the studios were sort of anticipating a strike. So we broke six episodes um, and yeah. So usually, you know, so we didn't, now we've got a break. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, usually it's about, I would say on broadcast, anywhere from eight to 10 months of solid work. Well, shout out to our pal Noah Evslin and- uh, Yes, yeah. I was screaming into the Hollywood abyss. I'm a big Noah fan. I really love his writing and had the pleasure to read a couple of his amazing scripts. Um, yeah. And of course, he grew up in Kauai. Do you have a relationship to Hawaii? Did you spend time there? Or um, was it all new for you coming from the East Coast and your own origins? 
it was honestly, it was, it was all new to me. I'd been to Hawaii once before I got on Magnum and then started learning a ton about it uh, on that show. And then I think because I was sort of primed after two years of writing about Hawaii and reading about it voraciously and that I was Did a good fit for the Hawaii? show. Did you read Missioners? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, but, but reading the weirdest sort of random facts and whatever, given whatever episode we're working on, kind of eating, sleeping and breathing it. So, um, but you know, the big value in this show is getting to go there and actually sort of not only meet our crew, but get to know the place. You know, there were these locations that we were right about on Magnum and then suddenly I'm on NCIS on the island. I'm like, oh my God, there's the, you know, like it was so cool. It was like meeting a celebrity that, uh, <laughs> you know, the, seeing it through a very different lens than when I'd gone there on vacation, you know, years prior. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the strike uh, in our remaining yeah. time because it's so important what's happening and what's on the line for writers. A lot of my audience are writers. A lot of my students are writers. Can you tell us a little bit about what's on the line for everybody and uh, where you expect it to go? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, currently, you know, we're, we've just started our second month of the strike. Um, and it's been highly effective in shutting down productions and inflicting pain on the studios with tremendous help from the Teamsters. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, we see the, you know, the big example of that pain is the shareholders rejecting Netflix's demand for the $166 million in back pay for their executives. Yeah, that's, so, news. that's really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing the entire Hollywood labor movement united behind us, which has not happened before. Um, you know, we're galvanizing a movement for a more equitable Hollywood. And, you know, SAG's historic strike authorization vote is an example of that. Um, you know, the DGA historically makes their deals well before their deadline because the AMPTP kind of wants them to set the pattern for everybody else, even though our deadline is before theirs every year. Um, but they haven't been able to make a deadline. So, you know, yesterday, I think, or the day before, all the unions got together and issued a statement of solidarity with them. So we could see in the, in the coming weeks a total shutdown of Hollywood, but don't want to speculate. We don't know either way. You know, we're in this fight until we get a fair deal. And, you know, it, there's no telling how long it's going to go. Tell me about your passion within some of the deal points that are up for negotiation right now. I mean, I think the biggest thing that the biggest sort of um, dangerous uh, thing that we're trying to combat right now are many rooms. You know, I've been so fortunate talking about being employed eight to 10 months out of the year. That used to be the norm. It's not anymore. And we're seeing, you know, I've got friends that did the program, got staffed, got on one broadcast show. It did one season. It was only a 13 episode order. So they're working maybe 20 weeks and then shows canceled and then they're unemployed for a year. And then, you know, I have one friend that worked I think eight weeks last year, and he had to make that money last the entire year. Couldn't take another job because contractually you're in a, an exclusivity deal. You know? Right, that was going to be my next question. He's not even at liberty to take another job because of the contract, right? Right. So he had to take other jobs, like he was producing events, which he had never done before, and and in order to make ends meet. And so I think many rooms have become a way for the studios to circumvent minimums and sort of the annoyance of having to pay writers and and you know i have another friend that she worked her ass off to get staff she was an assistant for years and years and years with a uh, an amazing showrunner that had an overall deal and then um in 2021 he finally staffed her he had gotten the green light to launch a mini room 
for a mini series. Uh, I think with ABC or Disney or I don't know. Anyway, she was employed, I think 12 weeks in this mini room. ABC got an entire season. I mean, they were working their asses off to get the whole, this entire season written in a short amount of time. They hand it off to the studio. Studio says, eh, this isn't for us. She doesn't get credit for this. And she's been looking for a job ever since. Now she's dog walking, which she loves, but she wants I think, to write. I think you, you know, know the so. same person. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Possibly. Yeah, funny. Small I world. Know, I know a dog walker with that story. And it's, it's awful. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. don't realize that doesn't go to your IMDb. You do all that yeah. work. You get paid for the work, but if the show doesn't air, it doesn't end up on your IMDb. And then people who don't know that will look at an IMDb and go, oh, well, this person's not working. And then that's that's really inequitable. Yeah, yeah. And so it's hard to build credit. It's hard to, to, to you know, build any sort of reputation. And and so th this is happening. This is more common than not. Yeah. And so I think that's the, the number one thing is this, you know, I'm seeing a lot of blowback. I think you know, the studios really bristle at the idea that writers are saying we need to be able to dictate. There should be right, not, not only minimum, you should raise minimums in terms of weekly pay, but there should be a minimum number of writers on a given project. And I think that that's a pretty basic request. It's something they can easily afford. And that will allow us to reverse the sort of gigification of TV writing. Yes all for it what can yeah. our listeners do of the show who want to support the strike what types of things can they do i mean i think the easiest thing you can do wherever you are in the world is is uh is support us on social media you know any form of social media any sort of support um is amazing it's 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 generating more visibility um you can also uh donate to the entertainment community fund which is a fund that is supporting not only writers, but uh, other sectors of the industry that are affected by the strike who, who need help to get through it. Um, yeah, and then obviously if you're in Los Angeles, you're in New York, or you're in a place with a production hub like Atlanta, we just shut down a production that was happening there earlier in the week. Um, you're always welcome to come out and join us and pick it. It's a great way to meet people organically and really show support. You know, this is, we're entering the second month and I think showing a presence on the streets is, is really, really important to remind people that writers aren't just sitting at home, you know, just writing and waiting for their deal to come through, that we're affected, our livelihood is affected, and visibility is the number one thing. Yes. Well, Mike Diaz, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate you. Thanks for your time. How can people find you and follow you? Uh, I am at Mike Diaz Film on Twitter and Instagram. Thank and you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Wolfpack. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please help our pack grow by sharing Hollywood Wolfpack with your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and write us a review. Kaya loves hearing from you and reads them all. For more on Kaya and the Entertainment Business School, visit entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Until next week, remember... The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack.